It's good to see y'all all congregated together today. I'm enjoying that even more than I expected I would, that we're all together in one place. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter one. We're beginning a series in Luke, very appropriate. We're going through the birth narratives during Advent. And such a dear passage, so significant. Let's hear God's word together. Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord." And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was spent, sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. And the grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. Amen. 
Well, back when it was popular and feasible for young people to buy Eurail passes and travel around Europe, uh, my older brother and three friends went to, to Italy. And after swimming all day in the Mediterranean Ocean and still in their swimsuits, they boarded a train en route to Munich to catch the Bruce Springsteen concerts. Concert, just a tough life. And um, at a stop in Milan, two of his friends jumped off to buy a pizza. My brother Nate stepped out on the platform to wait for them, and they returned with their pizza and handed it to him. And Nate said, you gotta come on. Um, the train's about to leave. And they replied, oh, we've got time. Uh, just a minute, we have a few more things to buy. And so they walked off to make some other purchases. And so Nate got on board with the pizza, joined his other friend. And sure enough, as he said, the train pulled out. And Nate's like, what do I do? But there was nothing he could do. The train had just left them behind. His other two friends in swimsuits, barefooted, without any of their belongings, without their wallets, and without their passports. And so what would you do today if that happened to you? Um, thankfully, it was a different time. It was 1985, and the constant threat of terrorism wasn't a thing. So these undocumented, penniless, scraggly Americans begged onto the next train. Then at the Austrian border, they begged to cross. Then at the German border, they begged again. And incredibly, they made it all the way to Munich and rejoined my brother. And I just love that story because it illustrates to me what so often happens with me when I'm traveling or just have something that is imminent to happen and that I just don't wait well. And we try and we fit a number of things into a short amount of time or we just get distracted or we think we have all the time in the world and time just slips up on us. When was the last time you were traveling or something big was about to happen and all of a sudden it was there and it was upon you, you weren't ready. You didn't wait well. Uh, spiritually speaking, we're not great at waiting. It's one of the reasons why Advent period is so important. In scripture we see the spiritual practice of waiting and watching is very important for us. To, to wait well, to watch well. Advent in Latin comes from adventus, meaning arrival. It refers to Jesus's arrival and Jesus's coming. Uh, in the Christian calendar and the wisdom in the church through the years, it, it mainly refers to the first advent when God the Son becomes man, his incarnation. Scripture uses it that way. And Scripture also uses Advent when God, uh, when to speak of Jesus' second coming, that he's, he's really going to return again bodily and wind up history and uh, usher in the new heavens and the new earth. There's a first coming and there will be a second coming. At the same time, Scripture also speaks of a, a present Advent, that there's a very important sense in which Jesus entered your life. He came to you. When, when you put your faith in him and repented and believed, he made his home with you. It was an advent in your experience, in your life, and in your growth in grace. Scripture shows that Jesus is always coming to us. He's coming to us by his word and by his spirit in Christian fellowship, we see him in our brothers and our sisters. 
Jesus also says that Jesus comes to us and those in need. He comes to us. There's a present coming. And so though we end Advent, we think of Jesus' first coming. We also keep the others in view. It's a time when we practice waiting as a people, putting ourselves in the shoes of the Old Testament saints, longing for Messiah to come. We long for his second coming. We, we long for him to walk with us now. We cultivate awareness of God's past actions, his present actions, and his future actions. And with this, we engage in repentance for the ways we get distracted. And we're just not ready. We're not aware. We're immersed in other things. And we seek to nurture expectancy. It's a time of repentance for us, a time of preparation for us, for how we settle into life and miss opportunities and miss seeing God at work and easily drift through life without this constant sense that God is with me, working, doing things. And so Israel was a people that was earnestly waiting for their savior, yet they too struggled like you and I struggle. And so I'm looking at this passage, I love this passage, and we're gonna look at four different questions. And the first question is, who does God work with? And the second question is, when does God work? Third is, what does God do? And the, the, the fourth is, how do we respond? So first, what, who does God work with here in our passage? Again, Israel's just waiting for Messiah, and you see that beautifully come out here. It's been some 400 to 450 years uh, since the last prophet. So there has not been a prophetic word for four centuries plus the last one was Malachi, therefore in our English Bibles, he's the last book in the Old Testament. But, but now God is about to act and fulfill his promises. Um, and so who does he work with? Well, I'd like to say three things. First, God works with people in hard circumstances. He, he tends to do that. The, the wonderful story of God initiating the fulfillment of all his saving promises, it, it begins in real history. It's Palestinian history. And in, in, in a few brief words, Luke says a whole lot. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And these days are dark days for Israel. They're difficult days for this people you recall Herod ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC. It was a long reign over this whole political area of Judea, which was Judea proper, Galilee, Perea, Syria, parts of them. But he received his kingship from Rome. He represents the authority of Rome, the fist of Rome over Israel, occupied Israel. He styled himself a Davidic king, but he wasn't even a Jew. He did a number of, of great works. He was known for his building projects. I mean, Herod's temple was magnificent. Yet, he was very selfish. He excessively taxed the people, a poor people. He, he was cruel. You remember the, the massacre of the two-year-old and under infants in Bethlehem. That was just par for the course. He, he was godless. He erected pagan statues in the temple. He, he was a far cry from the righteous, shepherd-hearted 
Davidic king, the Messiah, to come. But it's, it's interesting that right at the end of this false Davidic king's reign, right in the midst of these difficult circumstances, God initiates the work to send the true Davidic king, who's the polar opposite. And God often works in the bleakest times when it seems that things aren't going to get better. And God works also with godly faithful couple. Just one godly faithful couple. Zechariah was a descendant of Aaron, a priest. He was of the division of Abijah. And by this time in Israel's history, there are a whole lot of priests there's some 18 to 20,000 priests. So they were organized in, in 24 divisions, and Abijah is one of those 24 divisions. And so apart from the three major feasts where everybody had to be on duty because there's so much sacrificing going on, uh, during the ordinary part of the year, a division would be on duty two times a year for a week at a time. And there would be about a thousand priests on duty at any given moment. So Zechariah is a faithful priest. And those two weeks out of the year, what, what you did, wanted to do, you wanted to be fulfilling your, your calling. And he's getting to do that here. He's a, he's a faithful priest. Zechariah's wife was named Elizabeth, and she was a descendant of Aaron too. She was of the priestly line. I mean, they were like, they were the, the lineage of a model priestly couple. But more important than that, our text says that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It says a whole lot. It's not that they were perfect or sinless, but they were a godly, faithful couple. They're just one godly, faithful couple. And that they're just the real deal. They're true Israelites. They have a right relationship with God the Lord, they're seeking to express their faith in an obedient life. If they're members of our church, you know, they're kind of pillar members, the ones you count on, dependable, just seeking to grow and serve regularly in the body. It seems God's pleased to use in unique ways those going about their ordinary callings and daily walk, which is encouraging to me when I look at them. And, and furthermore, God works with people who experience deep pain. So we read that they have no child and Elizabeth is barren and that they're advanced in years. And when we read that, knowing what we know of the whole scripture, we're ready for God to step in because that's a storyline of the scriptures. We know our Bibles. We we know about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel, Hannah and Elkanah, you know, the parents of Samuel. We're poised for God to do something because God delights to bring forth a child of promise, not by nature, the ordinary way, but by grace. It highlights the gospel that God does things that we naturally can't do. And, and we see that here also, yet we're also invited to enter into Zechariah and Elizabeth's deep sadness. That's why he puts the detail in here. They're now advanced in years. We don't know how old they are. We're, we're not sure. I mean, life expectancy was shorter back then. How old were they? It seems they were past ordinary childbearing years. They lived their whole life, their whole marriage, many years, uh, 
without a child that they wanted so badly. It's a shattered dream, an unmet longing. There's a shadow over their heart. And it's been that way their whole marriage. But you'd look at this couple, you think a model couple like them will be blessed with a child, but they're not. And verse 25, Elizabeth feels her barrenness as my reproach among the people. It's a rep- she feels it as a reproach to her. She, she felt she wasn't fulfilling her primary role at home or in society. Many misunderstood God's word to mean that if a woman was barren, that meant she necessarily was under God's judgment, which was not what God said. So in addition to personal loss, she lived with this social stigma and real spiritual questions. Like, how do, I, how do I understand your dealings with me? God makes it plain they're not under judgment, they're blameless, he says. And it teaches us that godly people often go through very painful things. In fact, God is pleased to lead his sons and daughters through grief and loss in order to show them something about him and his ways that they wouldn't otherwise know in order to display his grace and his glory to themselves and to the world through their trial. He's pleased to do that. He's pleased to manifest his power and weakness. Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say about this that it's through this woman who feels despised and rejected that God would prepare the way for the Messiah who would be despised and rejected. The one who prepares for the Messiah or the mother of the one who prepares is one who deeply knows that feeling and therefore is an appropriate one to help nurture the one who would be the forerunner of the Christ. See, God is pleased to use our personal pain for his gracious purposes. It's characteristically his good pleasure to use such people. And we see that here. Well, when does God work? When does God work? Well, it's... It's Zechariah's division's turn to serve in the temple. It's not a major feast time. It's not the Passover or the tabernacles or something like that. It's just ordinary time. It's it's an ordinary worship service. So every day in Israel, there was a morning and an evening sacrifice, just every day. It was a whole burnt offering in the morning and one in the evening, and that burnt offering was a symbol of people's hearts rising even as the smoke rose rising as wholly consecrated to God, like I'm yours. It was a symbol of that. And so in Exodus 29, God says, it's at that moment of the morning or evening sacrifice, God says, I will meet with you and speak with you there. Like it was a promise of God, way back in Exodus. And the people have taken it seriously, so the people would congregate together at the temple to pray. They'd especially gather at the evening sacrifice, so that's probably the moment here. So verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And we just have this picture of a congregation of Israel at regular worship, using the ordinary means of grace, nothing spectacular, earnestly seeking God's face in prayer together, lifting up their national and their personal prayers to him at the appointed time. 
So Psalm 141, for example, says, "'O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, "'give ear to my voice when I call to you. "'Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, "'and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice.'" I mean, as, that was one of those uh, basic fundamental things and avenues of grace they availed themselves of, their congregational prayer together. It's one day of many that they've done this, but as he said he would, God chooses this time to act. He blesses this ordinary time with this extraordinary movement of his grace. And so it's as part of this morning and evening sacrifice, a priest would offer incense on the incense altar. So recall that the incense altar was right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And so the incense that would be offered at this time symbolized what the people were doing outside. The sweet-smelling aroma of the incense symbolized the prayers of the people passing through the veil into the most holy place where nobody was permitted physically into God's presence, into God's throne room. Though they couldn't go in there, their prayers went there, is what God was saying. So which priest got the honor of offering the incense at the morning and evening sacrifice? Again, every day the division was on duty, and so every day there's about a thousand priests. So who gets to do that? Well, our text says that they would cast lots in the morning. So you have a thousand priests casting lots. If a lot fell to you, then you got to do it. And if you got to do it one time, you never got to do it again. It was that special, and everybody wanted to be that person so badly. So it was the high point, the greatest moment of your priestly ministry, but you got to be the guy at the morning or evening sacrifice to offer the incense before God. It's the high point of your ministry. You looked forward to it. You hoped for it. You got to represent the people before the Lord, then come out of the temple afterwards, and you'd raise your hands, signaling to all the other priests to raise their hands, and you'd pronounce that Numbers 6 ironic blessing over the people. You got to lead that. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, lift up his face upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And you eagerly desire to be that guy And Zechariah is chosen by Lot uh, to be that guy today. It's the high point of his ministry, the greatest moment of his ministry. At that very moment, God decides to send Gabriel to Zechariah to announce the fulfillment is now in motion. At the same time, at this high point, something more is going on here, because Gabriel appears to Zechariah and says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Notice, it's a singular prayer, your prayer. And that prayer is, he's been in the, in the holy place, at the high point of his ministry, leading all Israel, pleading the promises of God for the nation, and yet his heart is at home. He's thinking of his wife. Sick of their grief and their personal tragedy as a family. And so his high point is colored by this cloud of their childlessness as a couple. That's his prayer. 
And at the moment when his emotions should be highest, he finds that they're actually very low. Maybe more than ever, he feels that loss just because they should be so high. And it's like the Lord lets him reach his ministry goal, his high point, to show him that that's not his deepest desire. And so in a striking way, he makes that clear to him. It's rather desires like, God, why, why, why this? I don't understand your ways. I don't understand how you deal with me. I'm, I'm seeking to follow you. And yet these hopes and dreams that ordinarily you give, you haven't given to me. And what about my wife, my dear wife? She suffered so much. That's on his mind and heart. It's coming out very strongly here. And so at that very moment when he achieves his highest goal, he feels his deepest loss. And that might be the case for some of you or, or at some point in your life. When you achieved your, minist- your, your career goals, you reached that place you were going for so badly. Now you're there and yet at that moment you realize, well, that didn't really satisfy me. There's gotta be more than that. I feel my distance from God now. I feel other desires that I wasn't aware of. Zechariah's high point accentuates his loss and longing more. It's a moment when we're ready for God to speak with us. We're ready. So what does God do? Third question. Well, God gives Zechariah and Elizabeth more than they asked for, more than they bargained for. It's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration of Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or imagine. It means how God works. What does he do? Not, not only will this child bring them personal joy and gladness, but many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. You want a child, you're gonna get some kind of child. See, God intertwines their personal story with his great story. He meets our personal needs even as he meets humanity's need. And that's a precious thing about the way God works. It's never just a global thing. It's, it's your story too that's part of that. So what does Gabriel say of this child? He must not drink wine or strong drink. Well, God prohibited priests on duty from drinking wine and strong drink. It's as if God's saying, this son, this priestly son is gonna be on duty all the time. Also, it's like the Nazarite vow. If you remember in number six, you could temporarily or permanently say, I'm not drinking wine or strong drink. I just wanna symbolize that in a special way, I'm gonna be wholly consecrated and separated to God and fulfilling this vow I've made. Or, or even furthermore, it's like an allusion to Hannah when she offered Samuel to the Lord as the first prophet after Moses in Israel and highlighting how significant his prophetic role would be. All this highlights how important John is to the plan of salvation. So behind this, God's commanding, the angel is commanding Zechariah, you, you, I'm giving you your heart's desire, but you can't look at him as if he's just for your enjoyment and satisfaction. I'm not just giving you a child for you. I'm giving, I'm loaning you a child. He's mine before he's yours. And he's given to you for my glory and my good purposes in his life. And you must rear him to be devoted to me. And it's the same with us and our children. 
Our individual callings in God's kingdom is just is important in the way God uses us. It's not just all about John. It relates to us as well. Our children aren't ours, they're God's. He gives them to us for his glory and gracious purposes. We're to rear them devoted to him. We're charged to love him and love others, to point people to Jesus. And we see that here. We, we all get more than we're bargained for when we ask for a child. And so Gabriel then says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And what a statement. It teaches us that God's quite able to work in the hearts of children even before birth. Sinclair Ferguson says it beautifully. He goes, God doesn't fill things with the Holy Spirit. He fills people with the Holy Spirit. We have a person, a person. And so important for our day, maybe uniquely this week. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear the Mississippi Gestational Age Act Our land views unborn babies. We're kind of conflicted in our view in our country, but that law views uh, an unborn baby as a thing, not a person. Isn't it interesting the two babies that are most important for this fulfillment of God's saving purposes would both be in danger of abortion today? John, because he is a risk to his older parents, and Jesus, because he's very inconvenient to an unwed mother. Well, to mark John out as filled with the Spirit is to underscore his significant role, especially as a prophet. So if you're called Jeremiah 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the people. Jesus would call John the most important prophet. And he fulfills this role that Isaiah spoke about in the reading today and Malachi spoke about, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's gonna prepare the way for the Savior, and he prepares the way for the Savior like Elijah did. You see, Elijah, we think of him on Mount Carmel, and the people are just mixed up with the nations. And he gathers the people at Mount Carmel, and he, he, he preaches repentance, a national repentance. Powerfully does so, if you recall Mount Carmel, and John will do that, and we see him doing that. And so it teaches that the the nation was waiting for the Savior. They weren't really waiting very well. They were getting distracted. They were blending in too much with the world. And we'll see with Zechariah, they had lost their sense of expectancy that God really is at work. And so in particular, Malachi prophesied he'd turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Really interesting that to prepare the nation, the fathers' hearts had to be turned to the children. It means fathers would prioritize their family and the nurture and rearing of their children. Broken families would be restored. That work would be done. It also means that the present generation who was kind of straying and sitting loose to God's promises would become wholly devoted to the Lord again and brought back into the living faith of their forefathers. That's his work. He's preparing the way. He sends a man to prepare the way. Well, how do we respond to that? It's the last question. When God speaks, we're to believe his word. We're to hold fast to his promises even when we can't see how they're going to be fulfilled, even when it looks like they're not gonna be fulfilled or we have to wait a long time. So Gabriel looks at Zechariah and Zechariah says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And again, he's a godly man. 
He's at the high point of his priestly career, yet he doesn't believe the promise of the angel. Have you ever felt that in your life? You feel like you're, you're following God, but really you, you, you're not very expectant. Sinclair Ferguson again says, he, Zechariah wants more than God's promises. It's not enough for him. It's like we think sometimes, I need this to happen, or I want this to happen. I want my children to do this. I want my life to look like this. We want more than God's promises. Zechariah wants more. So Gabriel answers, it's a powerful response. He goes, look, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this gospel, this good news. I mean, that should have unbelievably uplifted Zechariah. Gabriel is one of the most important angels. He stands in God's very presence, like God came to you through me. This is God's word. If you ever doubted it, I was in God's very presence, his throne room. You can't see it, but I was there, and I've come to you, of all people, to tell you this. And if you recall, the last time we hear about Gabriel is in Daniel. And Daniel was fasting and praying for the sins of the people there in exile. And God sends Gabriel at the moment of the evening sacrifice, just like he does with Zechariah. And Gabriel says to Daniel, the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell you for you are greatly loved. Beautiful, the beginning of your praying. It took a long time, but the response was given at the very beginning and now I'm coming to report it to you. These, these, these works aren't in doubt. Zechariah, you're greatly loved. Your prayers through the years have been heard, above and beyond what you can ask or imagine. I've woven your personal grief into God's redeeming mercy for the world. Just like Gabriel marked a turning point for Daniel, even so, Gabriel to Zechariah is the greatest turning point. Yet, yet Gabriel disciplines Zechariah for his lack of faith. He strikes him mute and later we'll see he's deaf too. So then you look at Zechariah and you go at the high point of his ministry when he was so looking forward to emerging from the temple, raising his hands and pronouncing the ironic benediction. <laughs> what he most looked forward to, God took it from him. He took it from him. And it must have hurt, like extremely disappointing. But he takes it from him in order to give him something greater. See, Zechariah needed to be a man who truly believed God's word in order to nurture a son who would truly believe God's word. He needed a man who esteemed God's promises in order to rear a powerful son that was gonna stand on God's promises and call the nation back to the Lord and prepare the way for Messiah. If he wasn't that, he couldn't be the right father for this young man. God forces Zechariah into a time of silence and meditation as he fulfills his promise to him and Elizabeth. He rebukes him to restore him. He disciplines him to deepen his faith. He wouldn't have taken this for anything. Like he knew he needed it when it was all said and done. And God may do this with us. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth are at that age when they don't really expect God to do much. They've waited a long time and maybe they just got a little bit tired and maybe a little bit jaded. They wonder that maybe they passed out of real usefulness. They've settled into life as it always is. And this can happen to us too. We remember years past, maybe in our youth, when we were more zealous or eager, taking steps of faith and more expectant. Now we don't really look for those opportunities quite the same way. Maybe we're just exhausted. Maybe just taking some knocks. We're just living. But God got Zechariah's attention as he initiates his 
fulfillment of his promises. And see, it's, it's a word to us about Advent. The point of it is that it's a good time to prepare ourselves to do a little inventory, take some time of, of silence and meditation like Zechariah, to wait, to cultivate, to renew our commitment that God really is on, at, in work. He really is at work in our congregation, in our lives, in our family, that our prayers are being answered, they're heard in the throne of grace. The gospel underscores that and proves that. You see, we can do this as a people even better, than John, even better than Zechariah because we know more than Zechariah knew at this time. We know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that against all odds, when it looked like everything was destroyed when he was hung on a cross, that that was actually the high point of his glory and the key to your redemption. And so we can depend upon God and pray and wait as a people and let him renew our hearts and renew our faith in his promises and his word. And might that be the case for us over these next few weeks? May God add his blessing. Amen. Let's stand.